0: Um, Our next storyteller tonight is Rocky Magellan, And Rocky is a planetarium presenter and a freelance science writer. He has a linguistics degree, which he likes to say is exactly as useful as it sounds. He's also just finished his master's thesis on whether or not astronauts should name their space plants. And the answer is yes. Yes, they should. Excellent. I'm glad we know that now. He also has more novelty t-shirts based on space than he knows what to do with, and I can attest to that. I received several photos today asking which one was more appropriate for tonight. So, as you welcomed him to the stage, please also take note of his fantastic shirt choice. This is Rocky Magellan. So uh, I usually work in a planetarium, which means I'm actually much more used to facing this way uh, and sitting down. So you'll have to excuse me if I look a little bit awkward, gesturing, and stuff like that. Uh, my story tonight is a story about failure, uh, and it sort of starts with my thesis, which I have just finished. Thank you. Somebody knew what to do uh and it's a very strange experience finishing a thesis it's a bit like having a toothache uh you sort of you know how when you've got a toothache you keep poking at it even though you really know you shouldn't uh i keep doing that i keep going to poke my thesis stress and it's still a surprise when it isn't there uh, so i've only had a couple of weeks to adjust uh, my thesis was about science writing uh as jim said we, we looked at different ways that astronauts were writing about their plants in space and looked at whether or not it made people uh, more engaged with what they were reading and whether or not it gave them misconceptions. The answer is not really and not really. Um, But I thought tonight I would talk about one of my favourite science writers. So tonight we're going to be talking about Arthur C. Clarke. Ooh. Uh, So Arthur C. Clarke, if you've... Haven't heard of him before, he wrote the screenplay and also the novel for 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is arguably not just one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, but possibly the greatest film of all time. And if you don't believe that, you can come up here and fight me. But... Slightly lesser known is that he was actually also a scientist and a non-fiction science writer. So as well as having a degree in physics uh, and being the president of the British Interplanetary Society, he also wrote for wrote for non-expert audiences, just regular people like you and me, about science. Now, just about his most famous uh I guess prediction in this area was that he predicted the geostationary communications satellite. Uh, now, that's a little bit of a mouthful, so let me, let me break that down for you a little bit. Satellites stay up by whizzing around and around and around our planet. The faster they whizz around, the higher up they go, but the longer they take to make that trip, right? So if you are right above the Earth's atmosphere, where the space station is, you can zip around the planet in about 90 minutes. If you're a little bit further up, it could take you three or four or five hours to get once around the world, And at a very specific point, about 36,000 kilometers up, it will take you exactly 24 hours to go around the planet once. Now, at the same time, of course, the Earth is spinning underneath you. And that also takes 24 hours to go around once. So a satellite that's up in this orbit will always be above the same point on the Earth. Now, this wasn't something that Clark discovered. They've known about that since uh, Kepler sort of, A guy named Johannes Kepler sort of discovered the laws of motion that govern how everything spins around up in the sky. But it was kind of just a mathematical curiosity. No one really knew what to do with it. Uh, And then Clark came along. He took a look at what he saw happening in society at the time. He said, well, look, television's getting more popular. Uh, And he took a look at the maths. And he said, there's this one spot where we can sort of put something and it will stay there. Obviously, this is where we're going to put all of our television satellites. When television satellites were not a thing yet. When communication satellites were not a thing yet. Uh, And he was dead on. The really neat thing about this orbit is not just that it'll always be above the same point on the Earth from space, but from Earth, that star, that point in the sky, will always be in the same spot. It won't whiz across the sky like the space station does. It won't even sort of slowly turn like stars do, like you see in those star trail pictures, it'll actually stay stay in exactly the same spot. And that means that if that's where you're getting your TV signal or your phone signal, you don't have to climb up on the roof and adjust your antenna, which obviously is something that none of us have to do, even when we do have Foxtel, right? We don't have to climb up there and adjust the antenna. So this is kind of Clark's shtick. He takes a look at what he sees around him, the science he sees around him, he takes a look at the society he sees around him, and he takes the next step. And the next step, and the next step, and the next step. And usually he's pretty good at it. He usually gets most of this stuff right. That's what I thought, anyway. And that's what I've been telling people about Arthur C. Clarke for a couple of years. Uh, But a couple of years ago, I got one of his books. One of his earliest non-fiction books. Uh, It's The Exploration of Space. I've actually brought it along, because I love props. Um... It was written in 1952, so 10 years before anyone ever went to space, before anything ever went to space, before anything was ever in orbit, before Sputnik, before Yuri Gagarin, before any of the Apollo missions. This was written right at the very beginning of the space age, and it is chock full of predictions about where the space age was going. They are all wrong. Uh, We'll start with a super basic one. something that Clark helped create. He said, as part of his sort of spiel about how big space is, uh, in a very sort of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, space is really big, you won't believe how vastly mind-bogglingly huge it is type spiel. He says, we can keep putting things up into orbit, and they will never, ever, ever crash into each other. There is so much space up there, guys, so much space. Uh, Of course, in 2009... Two of the communications satellites, a Russian military communications satellite and an American commercial communications satellite, smashed into each other in orbit. And they sent thousands and thousands of tiny little bits of debris, each one of those also moving at 40,000 kilometers an hour, spraying out across low Earth orbit. And every single one of those became a bullet that could hit. And no, I'm not just describing the plot of the movie Gravity. This is something that actually happened. Every single one of those fragments became something that could then collide with another spacecraft and so on and so on, and it created a huge headache for space agencies. So Clark can't even see the future of his own invention, but it gets a little bit worse. 1952 was sort of the dawn of what we now call the Atomic Age. Uh, So obviously, we were going to use this fantastic new energy source nuclear power to travel to the stars we were going to strap brave men no just brave men actually because it was 1952 we were going to strap brave men on top of a giant cylinder filled with the most explosive substances known to man hydrogen and oxygen fuel along with a nuclear reactor Uh, and then we were going to light the bottom of that gigantic firework and hope for the best And once it was up in space, we were going to turn on that nuclear reactor and we would coast across the solar system on an expanding cloud of radioactive waste. The exact kind of radioactive waste which we now spend billions and billions of dollars putting under mountains to keep in one place. Obviously, we don't ride across the solar system on nuclear reactors. What we ended up using was solar power which, if you think about it, makes a little bit more sense. A solar panel is really, really light. It's not going to kill your astronauts if it goes wrong. And actually, solar power makes more sense in space than it does here on Earth. I mean, here on Earth, it's dark half the time. There is no sun for half of the time. If you get far enough away from the Earth, if you get away from that 6,000-kilometer-deep lump of rock, it's bright all the time. And you can use your solar panels all the time. Now, solar panels, or at least the science behind them, existed in Clark's day, but he couldn't really see past the glorious nuclear future that everyone else around him was predicting. But I think the most disappointing thing that he got wrong was kind of who was going to be heading out there into space. In Clark's future, it's men and no, just men, heading out across the universe, and they're planting flags, and they're planting beacons, and they're building bases. And that never quite ended up happening. We uh, got one glorious moment of what was essentially a... uh, Can I say dick-waving competition on stage? A giant dick-waving competition between the USSR and the, uh, the US where they were trying to see who could put a person into space first, and then after the US won, everyone kind of gave up. What we got instead was robotics, and there was a place for robotics in the exploration of space, according to Clark, Uh, but he just assumed that once we figured rockets out, once we didn't need expendable missiles anymore, we would start putting humans on top of these rockets pretty much as soon as we could, and that's not what happened. We ended up exploring most of our solar system With robotic space probes, and they've been to places that humans could never go. So, while it's a little bit disappointing, it's also meant that we've been able to get up close and personal with some places we would never be able to see otherwise. So, I sort of got towards the end of this book, uh, and I was feeling a little bit disappointed, as you might expect. Not everything that Clark had ever said was right. I was expecting this grand prediction of the future, but that wasn't really got what I got. Uh, now I wish I could say that I then went through the book and highlighted every single passage in different colors and put it all in a spreadsheet and classed them as either right or wrong and then I'd have a nice, neat number for you about exactly how accurate Arthur C. Clarke's predictions were, but that's a little bit too much like my thesis. Uh, and I never, ever, 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 ever want to look at SPSS ever again. So, I didn't do that. What I did instead was a little bit of soul-searching. and I started thinking about why it was important to me that Arthur C. Clarke was right about anything. And I don't think it was. I realized that I didn't really care. Like, sure, I was not stoked that I had been telling people that he was this amazing scientific prophet for years and had been wrong. But at the end of the day, that's kind of what science is all about. It's all about getting things wrong. And if we're getting everything right, we're doing it wrong. As scientists and as people who talk about science with other people, it's a risky thing. You're not always going to get every single question right. So I realized what I liked about Arthur C. Clarke wasn't that he got everything right, it was that he could write. I'm sorry, that is a terrible pun, but it's the truth. What I really loved uh, about this guy is his writing. and I'm going to read out a particularly sassy passage, just because I uh, just because I like it. He's talking about the temperature of gas out in space. So there's a little bit of gas in outer space. And because it's moving really quickly, technically, uh, its temperature is very high. But there's not much of it, so it doesn't really affect us. Uh, and of this, he says, a few years ago, a journalist who had read that space was at a temperature of several thousand thousand degrees, wrote a sensational article on the theme that the Earth is surrounded by a belt of fire and interplanetary travel is therefore impossible. It would be an interesting experiment to to have immersed the gentleman concerned in the 20,000 degree Fahrenheit interstellar gas without any other source of warmth. Before he became too numb with cold he might have learned to appreciate the difference between temperature and heat. What's not to love about that sparkling prose? So this is the story of my revelation about how I learned to stop worrying so much about when I was wrong and start learning to uh, love the story that got me there. But there is a little twist because there's always a little twist. Clark actually predicted that as well. He was not just an incredibly prolific writer, he was also an avid reader of science and science fiction, a researcher, an undersea explorer. He was incredibly immersed in the world that he worked in. Uh, And just like with those satellites, he started to see some patterns emerging around him. Uh, And in 1973, just a few years after, at least a few of these predictions had been proven pretty wrong when man landed on the moon, Uh, He wrote a book, uh, or a paper, I should say, on the failure of imagination. And in it, he coined three laws of sort of science, sort of of science fiction, sort of of, uh, of predicting the future. The third one, the most famous one, is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Like, for example, a little blue panel that can turn sunlight into unlimited free energy. The second is that... The best way to find the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible like out into places that humans could never ever visit in the atmosphere of venus or dropping probes into jupiter these are places that we can never go but the first law uh, and it's very difficult not to see this one as a little bit self-referential the first law is this if an elderly but distinguished scientist says that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. If he says it's impossible, he is very probably wrong. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Rocky McGillan.